I'm Mark Ronson, and this is the Fader Uncovered podcast. In this interview series, I'll be speaking with some of the most influential and groundbreaking musicians in the world, from genre-defining stars to avant-garde trailblazers, about their lives and careers. Each episode will be rooted in these musicians' iconic Fader cover stories, an institution that over the past two decades has told artists' stories like no other. The podcast is a chance for us to talk about the past, present, and future, reflecting on their breakthroughs, diving into their lives when their covers hit shelves, and discussing what the future might hold now. And it's an opportunity for me to speak to some of the artists I most admire. This is The Fader Uncovered with Mark Ronson. This week, I'm in conversation with Jim James of My Morning Jacket. Jim appeared on the Fader cover way back in 2006 as part of the 40th issue celebration. He had just overcome a series of very real setbacks, both industry and personal, and was transforming his group into one of the most exciting live rock bands around. Fans of the band's southern fried rock sound, as captured on their breakout albums It Still Moves and 2005Z, were won over by a group unafraid to get weird. By factoring in all their influences from the world of classic soul, vintage R&B, and psychedelia, My Morning Jacket were pushing the idea of what an arena-sized rock band could look and sound like. Around the same time, 2005, I had a Friday night slot on East Village Radio, a very loosely run but quality internet station that operated out of a storefront on 2nd Street and Avenue A in New York City. I played mostly hip-hop, funk, and random things I was producing and very little else. I was almost oblivious to anything going on outside those genres. But Will Welch, who hosted the Fader's own radio show in the time slot right before mine, he would always tell me I had to check out My Morning Jacket because I would love how soulful Jim James was. In fact, I would hear that from countless people around this time. And when I finally checked it out, I understood exactly what they were talking about. He has an incredibly soulful voice. He's an incredibly soulful individual. He's also incredibly earnest, forthright, spiritual, and overwhelmingly positive about the human race. You can feel his light instantly and his childlike enthusiasm the minute he touches on something that moves him, be it the Muppets, Alice Coltrane, or Transcendental Meditation. A lot has changed since 2006, but My Morning Jacket have held strong, releasing great albums like the Grammy-nominated Evil Urges, as well as Circuital and The Waterfall 1 and 2. This week, My Morning Jacket releases its ninth studio album. Jim has described the self-titled project as being about breaking people out of their reliance on the endless scroll of social media, Netflix binges, and yelling at people that you will never meet in person, while also managing not to sound like he's judging anyone for doing so. He really just wants to gently encourage us to occasionally go outside and bask in the glory of nature and be overwhelmed by love and the spirit. Sounds very appealing to me. Where are you? I'm in Kentucky. That's where you live? Yeah, well, I split my time between L.A. and, uh, and Louisville. Where are you? I'm in upstate New York. Oh, cool. Have you ever spent any time here? Yeah, we made a record up there years ago, like 2004, at the studio that used to be called Alaire. Have you been to that place? Yeah, well, I know it's a really well-known, very well-regarded, like a lot of great shit. Dylan, like who, who made stuff there? God, I don't know. I mean, there was a period there where, yeah, it was like uh, really popping off. But then I think the guy lost it in a divorce settlement or something. Okay, right. <laughs> so I don't know if anybody else has turned it back into a studio or not. There used to be so many great studios. I mean, obviously, because of Woodstock and the gravitational pull that had, there were obviously studios, Bearsville, Allaire was more like upstate. But yep. it's a shame because these studios with these great histories and heritage that you kind of just want to go at least once and plug something in or record something just to see what they did or just because they are special places there. There's very few of those. You've done records in some pretty extraordinary places. The last record, Waterfall, you did at the top of a mountain, I kind of read. <laughs> like, What was that place like? That place is called Panoramic. It's in uh, Stinson Beach. Have you ever been there? It's like an hour north of San Francisco mm -mm. near Muir Woods. It's unbelievable. The studio is in this weird old house that this guy built ages ago, and then they just kind of turned it into a studio. But you sit on top of this mountain and look at the curve of the bay. is like half a circle. It's like this really beautiful, uh, really magical beach. 
Uh, where did you make this past record? I've only heard the first single, which is great, but this record that's about to come out, where'd you do that? We did that at 64 Sound in LA. Have you been there? Uh-uh. Oh, it's great. It's a studio in Highland Park. It's like the guy uh, that runs it now, Pierre, was like looking for studio spaces and he saw this big square building that he just like went and found the owner to ask like if he could build a studio in there because it was just kind of like a, you know, a big empty square. And the owner was like, well, actually, there is a studio in here. Wow. He built a studio in the 70s and had just been storing car parts and stuff inside there. But the whole thing was completely untouched, like completely like the board, the tape machine. And it's just got that real homey kind of 70s feeling in yeah. there. Really, really sweet place. Do you have a studio in the house, in your place? Yeah. Yeah, I record a lot at home. That's kind of what I do every day when I'm not on tour. Is that how you know you're going, the difference between demoing and making the real album? Like, how important is it to go into those real kind of big studios when you could probably do something pretty great and realized at home? Somebody gave me some great advice years ago to not demo anymore. Right. Because, you know, I don't know if you know that feeling, but it's like a lot of times you get trapped in the magic of the demo and you can never recreate it or whatever. Yes. Since I've learned how to, to engineer and record and operate Pro Tools and tape machines and stuff, I just try to start recording for real, you know, and then sometimes that real recording will become the foundation on which other stuff is laid or whatever. Yeah. For my solo projects, a lot of it is construction and stuff that I do by myself at home. But for my Morning Jacket records, one thing we really need is a big enough room for us all to spread out in and play live together in. So that's when the studios are really fun going to different studios and we don't even need a giant space like 64 sound isn't a huge space it's just big enough for about five people to kind of get together and that's one fun thing i think for me about making records too is just like going to a different space each time and you just get the different energy of the room i really love that but it doesn't matter to me if it's like a, a super pedigreed uh you know capital studios yeah. or if it's just a, a somebody's living room or whatever yeah I'm sure like you talk about it a lot, being so fascinated with sounds and especially just how did so many brilliant recordings from the late 60s and 70s with so few mics and why do they sound so good? Like one of the things that I watch over and over again, especially if I'm sort of wasted or I used to, is the King Harvest live, the band, when they're just playing in that yeah. room or the barn. Yeah. Or like watching the Questlove documentary. I don't know if you've seen Summer of Soul yet, but like oh, yeah. Stevie Wonder, the drum sound, like one mic and you're like, yep. this is yep. the greatest sound. And it's like you said, there's just this voodoo in rooms. It could just be a room that's just a room in someone's house and just it just has the magic way that the walls and the symmetry yep. and the people playing. But You know what? There's something I think about too that uh, is really fascinating to me. The air and the spirit of the time too. Because mm -hmm. a lot of times you'll get people, I mean, I'm sure you've had this experience a lot. You'll get the room, you'll get the mic, you'll get the amp or whatever. You know, you'll you'll literally get your hands on all of the classic things, you know, that that you'll get the tape machine or whatever that they used here or there. But you still cannot recreate the air of that moment of your favorite recording. You know, like you can't, capture the feeling of being in Motown or the feeling of being yeah. on that stage with Stevie Wonder or whatever. That's the thing that I think is so funny about the quest for gear and the quest for all that stuff, you know, because it's like, yeah. you know, people are searching for, gotta find that sound, you know, gotta find that Motown drum sound or whatever. And it's like, you just can never replicate the spirit of the time, you know, and the air in the room. No, absolutely. I heard a really interesting theory that people talk about Motown sounding a certain way and then high records and Willie Mitchell with Al Green sounding a certain way because it was hotter and it was hotter in the room and it like changed something away the, about the recording sounds and like the tape and, and you know, Detroit was a colder place obviously oh, yeah. a lot of the time. Like I, I've even heard, have you ever thought about that, about the actual like climate of the places that people Oh God, all the time. Well, yeah, it's so interesting because like I've been to Motown several times on the tour and then we got to go record horns with Willie Mitchell for our 
third record before he died. So we got to go to high studios. And uh, when you're in high studios, it's like covered in green foam and it's hot and steamy in there. Yeah. And Mo- yeah. Motown's a little cooler and it's in Detroit. And I've thought about that a lot. We've made records in spaces that weren't well heated or air conditioned. Yeah. So we made this one record in this giant gymnasium and half of it we did in the uh, summertime with no AC and it was just like so sweaty, so humid. And then the other half we did in the winter when it was cold and they sound yeah. completely different. Really? The the air, just the air sounded completely different. Yeah, because the, the water molecules and the humidity affect the sound waves are hitting all that water in the air versus when there's no humidity they go differently yeah it's wild i remember the first time that we went into royal studios the willie mitchell place and this was after willie mitchell died and his son booze still running it and yeah we were just doing like a little pilgrimage almost to visit all these spots and driving up from new orleans up to chicago and stopping all these places we wanted to see and we really went into royal as a bit of like a tour like okay guys we got an hour here and we just walked in and i looked at my friend jeff basket who was producing the record with me and i was like this place is like just like cancel everything we're staying here for the next week because it's like you said you walk in and it's like exposed beams it's asbestos you might be breathing in something unhealthy you're not sure but it was so obvious to me the minute that we went into that room i was like this is hallowed ground and i feel something here and we should stay here and just like roll with it oh yeah when you're talking about sounds are going to big rooms and stuff I mean, I guess this is a really, might be an oversimplification. I hope it's not offensive, but I feel like with uh, Jim James and like solo records, it's kind of the drums, because my whole shit is like so drum centric. I mean, sometimes it gets in my way, but sometimes I can listen to a record. I've spoken to this with people like Brian Burton, Danger Mouse, or or Kevin Parker. And it's like, I can listen to somebody's album and tell by the drums if we're going to be friends or not. Or at least, (laughs) like, get on and talk about music. And I feel like with your records, the the drums on the solo stuff is, like, quite lo-fi and, like, really tight and kind of, like, almost breakbeat-y. And then on the My Morning Jacket stuff, it's quite big and expansive because it needs that. And you know live it's going to feel that way and it's going to be swimming around these festivals does that hold any ground or is that offensive no it's not offensive at all every record's so different you know whether it's a solo record or a jacket record but it's funny because i've known both of those drummers since fourth grade uh my friend dave given plays drums in my solo projects and then patrick hallahan plays drums for my morning jacket I met both of those guys in the fourth grade. So I've known them both for like over 40 years. So we have like this really crazy thing. So there's never like a set intention. Like a lot of my solo record drums, I just record them myself in in my basement. You know what I mean? You know, jacket records have been all over the place from super crazy expensive studios to gymnasium to you know to my basement or whatever you know there's lots i think it's just interesting because i think those both of those guys play really differently i think a lot of it's mostly in their playing but i always just try to follow the energy of the the song and the moment so there's not a whole lot of uh conscious intention can you tell me about making this record i feel a little bit like an idiot asking about it too much because obviously i've only heard the first single but what was the process was it any different from other records that you've made yeah it was really different because we didn't really know if we were going to make another record i'd kind of had had to walk away from the band for a while because i was just burnt out on it and burnt out on touring and didn't really know i couldn't really figure out if i was like just over it all in general, or if I was just too burnt from doing too much, you know? And yeah, so we ended up playing some shows together and, and, you know, realizing that we still enjoyed playing together. So we decided to go into the studio. But one thing that was really different this time was that there was nobody else in the studio. I did all the engineering and, and recording and stuff. So there was literally just the five of us. And that for no producer, you just produced it. Yeah. I always produce the records, but I always have, there's always a co-producer that does it yeah. with me. And the co-producer always engineers and stuff like that too. Yeah. And I'm not even saying that any of those experiences were bad because each of those experiences were wonderful too. But we just kind of realized this time, you know, it's like the energy in the room changes when one different person's in yeah. there. Everything it's changes, true. you know, even if somebody, if a FedEx guy comes to deliver a package or whatever, the energy changes, you know? So... We found that just the five of us, we could be more 
vulnerable. We could be more sensitive. We weren't as afraid to make mistakes, you know, to go for things because there was nobody else in there. So that was a really, really beautiful thing for us, this record that, I mean, in some ways it was harder because I'm like simultaneously trying to get a great guitar take and a great vocal yeah. take and go chase down the snare drums blowing up too loud right. or what, you know, whatever <laughs> it is. It's like, but in the end it was, uh, it was really cool. I think it was worth it. And is the songwriting process, is it a collaborative thing with MMJ or is it something that you're bringing in a bunch of ideas and then fleshing it out with the band? How does that work? Well, yeah, I write all the songs, but it's interesting. I, like, I like to leave room for God, you know, like leave room for the Spirit to come in. Yes. And I try not to tell the guys too much anymore other than just like, oh, yeah, this song's G, A, and D or whatever, and here's here's a simple way of how it goes. Lots of times we like to get into a circular state where we'll just play round and round and round and round, and there's no beginning or end. You know, we'll go off into an improv moment or whatever, and then we'll find our way back to the verse or the chorus. And somehow within that, you know, I like to think of like, you know, like Miles Davis records or whatever, where they would they would play and play and play, and, and the album you hear is the edit of their favorite yeah. takes or whatever. So that mentality really works well for us because a lot of times if you're going one two three four let's get an amazing yeah. take you know it's yeah. oftentimes you don't get an amazing take we just kind of get into that circular way of doing it and, and I, i've found that to be really really helpful i met this guy and i'm so embarrassed that i forgot his name but he's like a legendary producer from 70s and 80s have you ever been to Shangri-La before? I imagine you have. The Yes, we recorded, yeah. uh, I did this thing called Monsters of Folk a few years oh, ago. Yeah. We recorded right. some of that at Shangri-La. Yeah. So sometimes there's just like the crick, because like Neil Young will be coming in and out, and there'll just be someone sitting at the table, like having lunch, and you just sit down, and you're like, I just remember shit, even though I'm embarrassed, I can't remember his name right now, from like liner notes and being like such a fan of like who engineered what my whole life. And... I was like, oh, shit, you did the Eric Burden of War. And he was like, yeah, he, he told me this story that on his second day, literally working at like United Artist Studios or one of those studios, like he was the engineer and War, they were either doing Spill the Wine or Me and Baby Brother, like some classic record. And that's what they did. They would just play for 20 minutes and they just looked at him like the new kid and was like, all right, just take the best three minutes and cut it down and print it to tape, okay? <laughs> so like, wow, this dude, like obviously, you know, I'm sure any three minutes you would have taken of those guys jamming would have been pretty great. But I also love the fact that he's changed the course of history by just totally. like what he decided to do. Oh, yeah. So is, it, is that similar then to your process? Oh, Definitely. I mean, it is crazy to me to give somebody outside that choice, right. unless you're consciously, obviously, like working with a producer that you trust and love or whatever. But right. but for me as the producer, I can't imagine anybody else picking those three minutes. No. That, you know what I mean? Because I really get into the, I mean, I, I'm sure you know this feeling too. It's like, especially with drums and stuff like that, it's like you're dealing with like milliseconds, you know, of what, yeah. what makes a beat swing or what makes beat yeah. do this or that you know you're dealing with all these like little bitty fractions of things and when you feel the moment you feel it you know what i mean and you know yeah. that's it and the moment 10 minutes before could have been fine too but it wasn't as glued or whatever it was you know about that moment that was the moment that stuff is fascinating to me A remote, beautiful, imaginary place where life approaches perfection. That's the dictionary definition of the term Shangri-La. The real Shangri-La is actually not much different, situated in Malibu on an idyllic piece of land just above the Pacific Ocean. Now owned by Rick Rubin and the preferred creative Eden of everyone from Frank Ocean to Kanye to Adele, it was first converted into a recording studio by Bob Dylan and the band in the early 70s. And that's what it feels like, really. Like someone went into a lovely rustic beach house and put a live room and a control room right in the middle of it. Like many other revered studios, it has a very specific energy as soon as you step foot on it. Religious, really, like you're on hallow ground. Part of it is the ridiculous setting, the contrast of this gorgeous green lawn and the sound of the ocean only a minute down the hill. And part of it is that weird juju that you just can't really put into words. Like stepping into a historic old church or temple. 
And then there's the knowledge that all these heroes and greats were there before you and that somehow that spirit, that energy, that creation is still in the walls and it gives you this extra reverence for everything you're working on. It really makes you want to raise your game, so to speak. We were lucky enough to get in there when Rick was out of town, the first time being for Lady Gaga's album Joanne, and it's also where we happened to write the song Shallow. There really is something about it, maybe the fact that it feels so cut off from the world. You go in there and you feel inspired to create in this unfiltered fashion. And the other thing is there's a couple of little studios on the property. So the fact that you might be working and glimpse Neil Young passing by the window only adds to the surreal layer of legendariness. I remember when Gaga brought him eggs from her chickens on one occasion, it was very cute. The thing with these special studios is it doesn't mean you're guaranteed to make something brilliant the minute you step foot in there, but you are aware of this extra presence. You are maybe more likely to tap into something below the surface noise and the chatter that clouds us. That juju which is the writing and recording process. And now, a quick break. Talking of producers and, and co-producers, I mean, you have worked with some like really legendary dudes. And the first one that just jumped out that I wanted to talk to you about, because he's done so many things that I just think are incredible, is John Leckie. And yeah. obviously that was early on in MMJ, but John Leckie, who did the first Stone Roses album, which would put you in the books for any English person ever. And then Radiohead, the bands. I mean, it's like, if you just did one of those, you would be sort yeah. of in some kind of rock and roll hall of fame. How did you get to work with him? John, man, he was just so nice. We met him. He came to see us play somewhere in London. We played the Astoria or something, you know? Yeah. And, did and he, he do Z? Is this Z or is this? Yeah, he did, he did, he did Z, Z with us. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, it was funny because we just, like, met him, and he's really, really kind, really kind of quiet guy, you know? So it was interesting because that was one of the first times we'd ever worked with somebody who wasn't a friend. We had a lot of fun, and, and I mean, he has ears of gold. And he's just, like, one of those people that, like, for whatever reason, where he puts the microphone and, and you really? know, the millimeter he chooses. Spot. Yeah, and, and just whatever he chooses to do to it. Those kind of things, like... People like him, engineers like that, the 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 truly great engineer, you know, because like mm -hmm. a whatever, I can mic a guitar cabinet or mic a drum kit or whatever and do a good job of it or whatever. But those engineers that have those golden ears like him, it's really mind blowing. Were you a fan of those records? Like as a band, I was like thinking in my head, like, wow, was this a band from Kentucky? Like, were you a big Stone Roses fan coming up, or would you, it was wasn't so much about what he did? You just liked him, or it was a little show, bit what? of both. Like I thought it was really cool that he was a tape op on uh, some George Harrison stuff and some John of Lennon course. stuff, and Forgot that, about that that he did uh, some stuff on Pink Floyd Metal, which I really love. Right in the bins, I didn't know. I still really don't know the Stone Roses record. So yeah, it was mostly those records, mostly Pink Floyd Metal, yeah, and just his history, and then just meeting him and just sensing like. This is a, a magical person, you know what I mean? Yeah. And it was interesting because we spoke such different languages. You know, he's such a different person than the five of us. You know, we're kind of yeah. these five d dudes, you know, just kind of laughing and stuff. And that was an interesting time, too, because we had had two band members leave and had two new band members at that point. So there's a lot of new energy going around. So I felt like we had this opportunity and, and he wanted to do the record and, and the timing worked out. And I was like, let's try this weird yeah. combination, you know? And then Z is pretty much considered the big breakthrough record. You'd already been building shit. And I understand you had, a, you know, this huge following live. But I think that Z was around when the Fader cover came out. Was that around 2005, 2006? I think so, yeah. And it's funny because talking to a lot of people like for this series are all people who have been on the cover of the fader and kind of what makes the nature of somebody who would be on the cover of fader is probably that they're pretty amazing progressive and don't really spend a lot of time looking back at their career so it's kind of interesting to talk to people who are pretty forward thinking about and making them go back and think about what was going on in 2006 but when that record really broke and you were having these things like magazine covers all of a sudden it's and it goes from being like suddenly not just critically acclaimed but commercial like headlining festivals this international success like do you remember what that felt like or the moment that it clicked in that that something it's something different had happened 
You know, it's funny. For us, it's like it's always been this gradual staircase of success. You know, it's like we climb this little staircase and it's like we're just playing and doing what we're doing. And it's funny because it's like things gradually have gone up and up and up and up and up or whatever, but never by any insane number one hit single standards, you know? Because yeah. I've I've talked to a lot of bands and read about a lot of bands who have had that number one single or whatever, even if they only had one, and how that yeah. that changes the scope of everything for the better or the worse, you know? Yeah. So it's been interesting with us because we've had like varying degrees, but we've never had that kind of like mainstream breakthrough moment. It's just kind of been this thing where it's like we just play our shows and for whatever reason it's like it just kind of rolls along on its own and it's not even that we haven't wanted to have a, a you know a smash single or a number one single right. or whatever you know it's like the the record labels that we've been with all throughout our time have tried to push our singles and you know tried to get us on TV and you know do the whole thing but it's like for whatever reason that's never happened but in yeah. some ways i think it's a good thing cuz it's like We've also been able to just continue on and make the music we want to make without question or without interference from the label or or anybody. You know, we're just like allowed to make what we want to make. And so that's kind of what I do when I start each record is just like, let's just make the record that's speaking to us right now. And of course, it'd be awesome if, if, if it's successful. It's not like we don't want it to be successful or anything, but... Right. But uh, well, I mean, all, and all the records have been very successful as far as how many people you reach. I mean, I'm sure a song of yours, Not Come Loose or something like that, has by now reached so many more people than like some song that happened to be number one in 2005 that we've never heard from again. I guess there's just different barometers. Right, that. right. Yeah, I mean, just the fact that we can play concerts and people want to come see us, you know, it's like every time I walk out on the stage and there's like people out there, I'm just like, wow, like this is still happening. Because I've, for whatever reason, it's like the music comes to me, and of course I, I shape it by my, the things that happen to me in my life, but at the same time, I don't, I just work with what the universe is speaking to me at the moment. Yeah. Each album we make, is just like what the universe spoke at that moment filtered through us. But so it's like there's never been a, an intention to like hit a moment or like, you know, climb on this trend that's yeah. like doing this upward thing that's going to get us this hit or whatever. So I feel like in a way it's been just this really interesting journey of uh, just like continuing on and continuing on and continuing on and watching it go up and watching it go down. And, uh, you know, so much of it I just feels out of my control. Speaking of like, longevity i went on a steve miller deep dive because of your cover that recently you covered a song of his seasons right yeah what was that for what was that what was for uh, secretly canadians 25th anniversary chris one of the people who started the label we kind of started out at the same time and there was a moment back in like 98 or 99 or whatever that we almost signed to secretly canadian or whatever so we've been casual friends and he just reached out to me and said he wanted to hear me sing that song. And I'd never heard oh, that. Oh, he picked that. You had never heard it. No, I'd never heard it before. And I was like, okay. I was like, I'll listen to it and, uh, you know, check check it out. And and I I loved the song. And Yeah. And so, yeah, so I covered it for Chris. Yeah, it's beautiful. But I went and listened to the rest of that album of his, Brave New World, which is like, it's pretty fucking amazing. It's like good, like, psych rock where the drums sound like all the, you know, the kind of nuggets and they're very... Thin and breakbeat in there's about three songs that just open with two bars or four bars of like a drum breakbeat that you would just be like oh my god i can't believe no one's sampled this but then yeah i don't know it's just funny like he has this really cool san francisco sound and then obviously like three years later he's making the joker yeah. and rocking me and like all this kind of shit and i have a lot of respect for those people that just like evolve through through eras and as sound is changing but yet the thing that you do is kind of magic and then when i first heard about you and i was probably like deep in my sort of dap king hip-hop world in the mid 2000s and what i noticed that everyone kept saying is like oh no but you should check out my morning jacket or you should check out jim james because he's got this crazy soulful voice like that's what everybody would say and obviously I mean, you know what you sound like, and you know that people love your voice for that thing, but how? what were your influences and your roots like coming up singing, and, and how did you find that range? And was it like, did you listen to a lot of soul music growing up? Like, uh, I'm just super curious. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I love, like, I just love music so much. It's kind of endless. And I love going into different voices, you know, playing different characters for different yeah. songs. You know, like, sometimes I love going falsetto. Sometimes I love yelling, you know, really loud or whatever, you know, like, yeah. or sometimes I love doing really deep stuff or whatever. Yeah, I mean, there's so many people like Curtis Mayfield and, you know, Dylan and Aretha Franklin and Marvin Gaye. And, I mean, so many people. A lot of my favorite stuff, too, I like, I don't even know... The singer's name, you know, like a lot of my favorite music is like Lost, Numero Group, or Light in the Attic type stuff, yeah. you know, gospel stuff that's like been lost and rediscovered. I've really enjoyed that whole phenomenon, you know, over the past decade or two of, of these labels finding these lost releases, and uh, those things bring me so much joy. So I, I think a lot of people who have shaped my vocal style, I, I, I don't even know who they are. Yeah. I know you talk about the Donnie and Bob Emerson. They had that song. Oh, baby. baby. Yeah, that's such a great Donnie and Joe Emerson. Yeah. That's just, just, it's, you could spend your entire life just listening to like unearthed music and jazz oh, back yeah. then, like without, and you could like never have to listen to new shit. But yeah, I've seen you talk about that light in the attic stuff a lot. And that stuff really is kind of amazing. But what was the music of your kind of youth growing up? You grew up in Kentucky, right? Yeah, I mean, really the first thing for me was The Muppet Show, because that was the first thing where I realized you could even make music, you know what I mean? It's like, right. I, I was like, what is this thing that this frog is doing sitting on this log? You know, it's like, wow. and I remember seeing Kermit sing The Rainbow Connection as a child and just crying. You know, I was three or whatever, and I was like, I didn't even understand what he was. I was like, he's making this sound with his mouth, and he's playing this thing, like, and it's making me cry. You know, I didn't have the words for it as yeah. a three-year-old, but I remember that's with uh, When You Wish Upon a Star, you know, hearing that in Pinocchio as a child, too, like hearing ukulele Ike Cliff Edwards, the guy that sang that song that was the voice of Jiminy Cricket later as I studied that song. Have you listened to that recording, When You Wish Upon a Star? I haven't, no. Dude. I mean, I feel like I can sort of conjure it in my brain, but oh no, my God. I think when, I need to listen. When we get off this call, keep your headphones on and play the classic, you know, When You Wish Upon a Star, because yeah, yeah. everybody knows the melody, everybody knows the song, Yeah. but the recording is like the pyramids of Egypt or what it is one of the greatest things humankind has wow. ever constructed this recording the vocal the choirs the orchestra the whole thing of it not to mention just the recording itself i mean it is fucking nuts you know i feel like i've been chasing that recording my entire life you know not even knowing it trying because yeah. in my ultimate fantasy I, I would love to build something like that but yeah i mean as a kid you know and then and then from seeing the electric mayhem on the Muppet show, you know, and realizing yeah. that like, that's what a, that, what are they doing? You know, although the people play music together, that's a, ba a band, that's called a band, yeah. or, you know, and then like, and then being a kid. And when I was like in seventh or eighth grade, REM was hitting really big, you know, with out of time was hitting really big. And then of course the whole grunge thing was so cool and Nirvana and Pearl Jam and all those bands hitting really big. And I think that's what finally made me realized that I could try to be in a band too, you know, was seeing, cause I was like, I'm not a Muppet. And then I like hair metal was really huge. And I was like, I'm not really a hair metal dude, but then seeing like REM and Nirvana and stuff, I was like, Whoa, wait a minute. You can just be in your band in a t-shirt or, or, you know, you could just be a person that picks up a guitar. And yeah. that moment was really, really beautiful. And it helps that you can shred because then you can, you know, to be tasteful and then to shred when you need to is good. I think the Muppets is one of my first musical awakenings too i mean because i'm a couple years older but that was just such a thing that i had to watch every week and so wonderful but the songs that you mentioned rainbow connection like there's a heavy melancholy in that like it's beautiful but like to be so moved by that as a kid also like you must have been kind of in touch with something emotionally and something going on out there because that's a the heavy song as a kid to be like that's the one you know it's, it's yeah sad. it's like it's weird that i've always been hit by that sadness because when you wish upon a star is the same thing it is a deep yeah. deep like heavy sadness and especially when yeah. you, you learn the backstory behind the the guy that sung it and his tragic what life is, uh well oh, what is it he was this kind of novelty singer cliff uh edwards he was called ukulele ike he was kind of like a comedy singer and uh you know they discovered him disney discovered him or whatever and he became the voice of Jiminy Cricket and Pinocchio, you know, and, and okay. sang. I mean, he sang all the songs in that film, but yeah. you know, When You Wish Upon a Star became this insane, beyond even hit. You can't even call it a hit. You know, it's like part part of our DNA. But, you know, it's just kind of a classic 
tragic Hollywood story of of uh, his addictions and his demons and not yeah. be, not being valued by the industry or whatever. He just kind of fell by the wayside. Man, it's weird too because I remember watching the Muppet Show and they did a skit based on the Jim Croce "Time in a Bottle" song. You know? Yeah. And yeah. there's this scientist in a lab watching all these uh, beakers boiling over, and they were full of time and stuff. And it, and he was lip syncing. The Muppet was lip syncing to "Time in a Bottle." And I remember seeing that as a kid and being like, Jesus, like, what is this feeling? You know, like, what is this this feeling yeah. that I'm feeling as, as this song plays? That feeling has always spoken to me. We've all connected with music and rhythm way before we can remember. You only have to watch a baby play excitedly with a rattle to get that. And even as early as six months, babies understand the difference between major and minor keys. You know, minor being the key associated with sadness, sort of. Babies' expressions and moods change when hearing both. What's really interesting is how James was so taken in and transfixed by genuinely melancholy music as a kid. Aware that he was being moved by some sentiment, something in the universe he couldn't put his finger on. One of my favorite singers, Yeba, told me once that when she was two or three, her parents would be playing Aretha Franklin in the car and they would look back at her and she would just have tears streaming down her face. Not especially sad, just so overtaken with the music and connecting to something in it. Some emotion, pain, melancholy, wistfulness, or maybe just the beauty of it. I do feel like if I saw a kid crying to Aretha Franklin, or in James's case, when you wish upon a star, you would have to look at that kid and be like, they are certainly tapped into something maybe a little more than the rest of us. There's something so alluring and interesting and attractive, like when you have the falsetto male vocal in rock and roll, like I think of like you, I think of Josh Homme, because it's, A, it's kind of spooky. It is something ghostly about the falsetto, so it's almost like playing with it. I mean, the classic, like, Skip James, like, blues singers who had the falsetto, you'd be like, is he playing with, like, devil work or voodoo or something? But there's just that thing of, like, a big commanding male presence, and then this bewitching, wonderful thing comes out. And I think part of it is just, like, the fact that technically it's it's beautiful and it's impressive and it's like if other people could sing like that they probably would too but there's something about it and i always find myself drawn to that do you have any theories on the falsetto the ghostliness the fact that it feels like a little spooky or some shit or for you it's just like the way you sing you know i had this realization after i uh, had back surgery years ago and i could no longer run around as much as I used to. Like, I couldn't jump off the drum riser anymore. I couldn't, like, you know, I used to, like, run all over the stage, real crazy, jumping and all this shit. And I got injured a couple times, a couple different ways. So so I had to just stand there and sing more, you know, just stand Mm -hmm. and play. And not that I don't move around some, but it's like, I had this realization, it's like, I can be even more powerful musically just fucking standing here you know and and all this running around and all this jumping and shit is like me working too hard you know doing too much and i think something about the falsetto is similar in that energy you're letting this this voice come out of you in, in this really easy way you know where it's like you're not belting you're not forcing you're not doing anything and and i i'll never forget hearing Curtis Mayfield for the first time, the power of Curtis Mayfield and the power mm-hmm. of his music and the power of those records and just the way his voice is so effortless. You know, it just flows out in this this effortless, wonderful way. You know, that was what really, like, turned me on to the falsetto in a, in a major way. Was that something you knew since your teens or is that something you sort of came across later? No, I mean, Curtis Mayfield crept in somewhere in my 20s. No, I didn't know him that well growing up. But yeah, Curtis Mayfield and Prince, you know, I feel like they, for me, like were the ones that inspired that so much. I mean, the things that I've read about you, like, and just when you start talking about your influences and stuff, there's always a lot of shared things. And I mean, obviously, everybody loves Curtis Mayfield. That's not so unusual. But Gil Scott Heron is someone that I t- heard you talk a lot about. Yeah. Right? He's, God, he's yeah. Someone, 
I mean, and Gil Scott Heron is so interesting because his voice is so different than Curtis's, right? That's one of the things I love most about music and falling in love with music is like then you realize like shit, like I don't I don't have to be bound to any rules. You know, there there are no rules and not that everything you do is always gonna work or whatever, but why not try? You know, so like yeah. getting into like Gil Scott Heron and, and we've gotten to play several times with Brian Jackson who made all those records was Gil Scott Heron you know I saw he came up and you guys did the bottle right yeah did you do it yeah at the garden yeah just getting to talk to Brian and like feel his energy and like just like the magic of those records I mean it's just like if you're a person that's blessed enough in this lifetime to be given the gift of music what a gift you know and what a mm-hmm. what a limitless gift you know that mm-hmm. it's like you can search and explore and and be inspired and, and try different things and it's like you know listening to gil scott heron is like oh, i'm gonna you know i'm gonna try singing in some lower tones or whatever you know yeah or listening to fucking nirvana or whatever and like you know as a kid and like i'm gonna scream my face off or whatever you know just these real yeah. these realizations that you have or listening to kermit and you know like i want to gosh i want to do a tender ballad you know and hopefully you take those inspirations and make them your own you know hopefully yeah. it's, it's an inspiration not an imitation but you know it's like it's so cool that we're all constantly filtering each other you know it's like it's wild absolutely i don't think that you could possibly take kermit the frog kurt cobain and gil scott heron and not somehow make that your own like that is that is like i always <laughs> think of music as like play-doh and there's the different colors and then like you could give anybody the same play-doh or watercolors or whatever and no one is going to come up with the exact same hue yep. when you combine those things it's just a thing that gil scott heron i i don't know what kind of music i think i was familiar with like some 70s funk and r&b i like the meters i like the ohio players but when i heard gil scott heron i was probably like 15 i think i accidentally turned on some cool college radio station in new york like fuv and i heard and i'd never heard when it was like you may not tune in and cop out like the whole thing. Yeah. I, my brain i was like yep i do remember it was one of those real moments there's probably five or ten where I like stopped in the tracks like just like what what is going on right now like yep it was just so fucking arresting oh my god yeah the, and those records like pieces of a man and, and winter in america those gil scott heron brian jackson records i feel like are some of the greatest records of all time you know yeah. they're, they're just unbelievable a good friend of mine, this guy, Richard Russell, who started XL Recordings. XL Recordings was labeled out of England that started with The Prodigy, but then signed The White Stripes and MIA and, you know, a lot of cool shit. But um, he produced that last Gil Scott Heron record, I'm New Here. Yep. And, like, his retelling of stories of what Gil would say, like, it just sounded like the most wise sage but like cutting to the point like never sugarcoating shit like you would just want him in your life as some kind of spiritual guru one thing as well is if you don't mind talking about is transcendental meditation i mean i discovered it and it's had a very positive effect on my life and you've talked about it you've done records and stuff for it can you tell me a little bit about how you found it Yeah, I mean, my journey with meditation has gone lots of different ways. The first thing that I found that appealed to me was like insight meditation, like Jack Kornfield. I don't know if you've heard of him. Yeah, Uh, I have heard of him. You know, some of his books on tape or whatever of listening to him talk about meditation as if you're in his class, you know, and he kind of was one of the first people that opened the door to me of like meditation being this very normal thing, you know, this very useful. Because I think a lot of people, I mean, myself included, I thought, you know, if you meditated, you had to be reaching some enlightened state, you know, floating off the couch and seeing these green lights or whatever. But I kind of, listening to Jack Kornfield, I kind of realized that meditation is just about like, just like seeing really what's going on in your mind, you know, trying to Mm -hmm. become one with the universe. And that was kind of breath-based meditation. And then I discovered transcendental meditation, which is focused on the mantra as opposed to the breath. Yeah. That really made sense to me because like the breath, I don't know if it's like being a singer or whatever, but I would get too hyper-focused in not a good way on my breath and like just yeah. kind of not feel comfortable. So the the mantra became really, really helpful for me. One of the most beautiful things I heard when I was learning that was that like the goal of when you're meditating, when you're sitting there, you know, you're thinking about all your problems or you're thinking about the grocery store or your, you know, your mind's busy. And then you try to say the mantras in your mind as faintly as possible. And it's like, it's disappearing. And 
the space between where the mantra ended and before you start thinking about going to the grocery store again or whatever is where you've transcended and where you've reached the same level of consciousness as a leaf or a deer or a, you know, a droplet of water or a stone or whatever, yeah. you know, that just blew my mind and really like tuned me into nature too, of just like trying to find that nature consciousness, you know, of just being alive and aware like a tree would be, and therefore trying to be more able to just enjoy this moment and not be thinking mm -hmm. about all the moments from the past and the future and, and all these things, just trying to be in that consciousness. So I always encourage people to just follow their heart when it comes to meditation and try as many different kinds as you can. I do like the transcendental meditation, although it's hard for me as someone who's like a lot of people very self-critical or whatever to ever absorb fully the notion that there's no wrong way to do it. Like even because yep. of course there's a way when you're been told that you're going to silence your mind and you're going to find this great place. And all you can think is the, of the grocery store and the thing you have to do, like to be like, I'm doing it wrong. Like, why can't I fucking do it? But when you do let go of that and not try to control it, it is, it is a wonderful thing. It's just a great exercise in probably not trying to control. Everything well, yeah, that's, I think that's the most important thing for people to realize is when, when they hear that chatter, that's what's going on in your mind. You know, like that's mm -hmm. so, so for us to sit on a cushion and not have our phone open and not have our computer open and sit with ourselves and see what's really going on, you know, like in this way mm -hmm. that we're always trying to distract ourselves. We're always trying to work on something or talk to some, you know, somebody or look at social media or whatever. It's like, if you can get away from all that shit and see, yeah. see what's really going on in your head. And yeah, uh, hopefully you can have these moments where you transcend or where you, forget about the grocery store or whatever, you know, but it's like, even if you don't, you're still doing this really beautiful work of getting in touch with yourself yes. in this deep way. And another thing I tell people that they told me when I first tried to start learning meditation is you, you got to think of it, it's called a practice because it's something that you practice like playing the piano. Yeah. You know, you don't sit down yeah. at the piano and instantly play like a genius, you know, you got to work, you got to practice. So I try to remind myself of that too when I'm in, because I'm in the same way. I mean, I go through terrible spells where I'm like, I can't meditate and I don't meditate for weeks or whatever. And I, you know, am so down on it and so down on myself. And then I like, okay, all right, all right. You got to remember, it's just a practice. Yeah. You're going to be practicing forever. You're not supposed to get anywhere. You're not supposed to win some contest with this. Yeah, it's it's wild. I guess it's just the idea of like, you're actually not your thoughts. Like those thoughts that are zipping around in your head are really just sort of like, electromagnetic impulses so yep. the minute that you realize like actually you're the person sort of behind that almost i always sort of picture it as like there's like a little lighthouse in the very back of my brain and that's the thing that's kind of shining a light looking at and all the other stuff is just these sort of whatever you want to call it bats in the belfry sort of flying around but just remember that you're just this kind of pure light or absolutely something. yeah that's like the essence of your soul yeah your soul is not your thoughts Our thoughts are really just electromagnetic impulses darting around the brain, or at least that's what my therapist tells me. But of course, we live so much within our brain and our thoughts, it's impossible sometimes not to let those impulses basically define us. For example, if I'm having a bad day, I might have the thought, I don't want to go to the studio today because I'll have no good ideas, and if I go, everything's going to suck. That thought feels very real to me at the time that I think it, almost as if it were a fact. But the fact is, actually, that this thought is not grounded in any reality whatsoever. It's not based on any real prior history, and it's pretty much all supposition and some doomsday fortune-telling. But of course, in that moment, it feels like the truth, and it's hard for me to extricate myself from that becoming my identity at that moment. But on a good day when I get to the studio, yes, I might second-guess and cloud my own creativity for the first little while, but if I hit on something I like and start working on it before I even know it, three hours has flown by, and that really is its own form of meditation in a way. It's the purest part of creation, when the chatter and the clutter fall away, and you're tapping into something which even you don't quite know where it's coming from. There's this roomy poem where he's talking about, my friend just sent it to me last night, so beautiful, and it's talking about the soul in that way where it's like, I'm trying to find it and I'll read it to you. Yeah, it says, uh, one who has lived many years in a city, so soon as he goes to sleep, beholds another city full of good and evil, 
and his own city vanishes from his mind. He does not say to himself, this is a new city. I am a stranger here. Nay, he thinks he has always lived in this city and was born and bred in it. What wonder then if the soul does not remember her ancient abode and birthplace, since she is wrapped in the slumber of this world like a star covered by clouds, especially as she has trodden so many cities and the dust that darkens her vision is not yet swept away. I thought that was just like a, yeah. a, a beautiful way of thinking about that way. It's like our soul is this eternal golden light that we can't understand, you know, and it's like at night and dreams we go off somewhere else, you know, but the soul remains. And the same thing with like, yeah, our thoughts or meditating or, you know, the things we go through, it's like our soul is still there behind it all, you know, the observer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I couldn't tell because I saw the video, the new video first before I heard the song, but is it a little bit of a statement on our current fixation with just, I guess, whatever smartphone culture is, whether it's social media, whether it's instant gratification, whether it's, you know, having to buy things online. I mean, everybody's been indoors for the past year and a half, so there's obviously a a ton of that going on. Oh, definitely, yeah. I mean, I feel like these things, you know, these computers and these phones and these uh, social media platforms and all this stuff, they're wonderful tools. You know, they're really, really beautiful tools. And they could even be responsibly made and responsibly powered. You know, they could be powered by the sun and the wind. But it's like they've turned into these terrible addictions that they're destroying us as people. They're ripping us apart. They're ripping the planet apart. And it's like we're just all buying it. You know, we're just all going right Mm -hmm. down the pipeline with it. One thing I've found that does help is just like going out into nature, you know, going out into nature Mm -hmm. and meditating, trying to just put your phone down and just go outside. You know, even if you can't Mm -hmm. go to a some crazy mountaintop or some insane forest or something, just literally like close your, your phone and go outside, you know, and just be in the moment. Yeah. It's killing us. I mean, it's, it's, it's ripping us apart. You know, it's made this, uh, people can't even talk to each other anymore. It's like, there's no forgiveness. There's no notion of agreeing to disagree. You know, it's like, I feel like there's so many people, there's this ridiculous notion of right and left or liberal and conservative. That's just like, it's not true. You know, it's this divide and conquer, Techniques that are used so well to keep people uh, down are, are working on us. You know, it's like the it's just classic shit. And it's like if we could wake up and see that we're all more alike than we're different, and just agree to disagree on some things. You know, it's like I think that would be a lot better. And I think if social media and phones and everything disappeared tomorrow, and we all were forced to just deal and interact with the people around us. I think the world would be a better place overnight because you treat somebody better when you have to look them in the eye and listen to them than when of you're course. on Twitter yelling at them about something they're yeah. not, not going to listen to you about anyway. That's the easiest thing to ever to argue with someone that you know you're never going to have to see. I mean, I'm saying the most obvious thing. I actually remember going down to Kentucky for the first time. I haven't been so many times. I was going down to Louisville to work with the Nappy Roots like back in like 2002. Yeah. Do you remember that group? Oh, yeah. And I remember I was sort of waiting for like the big culture shock or something. And this was in a, even in a different time. America wasn't polarized as it is now. But, and I just remember just like being in the back of this guy's cab and just talking to him. And he seemed like a little bit buttoned up and sort of conservative Southern to me. But like we just talked and I was like, if I grew up here, I would be like that. Like it's just this kind of idea that we can't, like you said, we just can't see the humanity in like anybody else's experience yeah. and why they might be that way. Right. Um, do you talk about your political leanings or do you like to keep away from that shit? I mean, I'm always down to talk about anything. I mean, I, I'm really into encouraging people to vote. I'm into encouraging yeah. people to use the existing system in order to hopefully change it for the better, you know, because I think it's a deeply yeah. flawed system. But uh, I try to do it in a very open way, you know, in a very kind way, because I feel, I feel like we need more conversation between people who disagree. So I'm never yeah. trying to come down and be like, oh, I thought, you know, you're a fool for thinking this. You know, how could you do this? You know, because that's what's dividing us. But I mean, back when I was on social media, I would post things or whatever that was going on. Yeah, so I don't know. I'm, I've always tried to say what I feel or what I believe, but also try and do it in a way that leaves the door open for discussion, you know? Yeah, I think that's healthy. What And what are you doing? Because you're touring right now as well. 
Are you asking people for vaccine cards or how, what are you doing for the shows? Yeah, I mean, yeah, every show you have to have a proof of vaccination or, or proof of a negative test. And, you know, it's, it's all complicated. It's all confusing. You know, every day is different. It's like, I mean, right now we're in a crazy circle because one of our member of our touring party got COVID. So we've had to reschedule show, you know, and it's like even, you know, whatever, they were fully vaccinated and fully careful. You know, we're taking every imaginable precaution you can possibly take. But still, there's so many aspects that are out of your control. But it seems like to me, I mean, at least this is what we've kind of come to is like, we're all trying to move forward in this world, right? And it's not ideal. And we also haven't figured it out yet, but we're trying to move forward because we have to. It's like, if this is mm -hmm. the world we're going to live in, we've got to hopefully figure out some way to still go to shows and still yeah. be with each other in person. But we have to have a mask on. We have to be vaccinated. Yeah. We have to do these things to show each other that we uh, care about each other. You know, the whole vaccine argument obviously whatever people are free to believe what they want to believe you know i don't know i just try to listen to to the science and go with what yeah what seems to make yeah. the most sense and and try to not listen to i really try to not listen to weird things on facebook or cable news shows and stuff like that because i think that stuff is toxic and misleading but everything's so warped right now people are like you can't listen to the science you know that's the government and they're trying to fool you or whatever you know and at the end of the day it's just like you just have to follow your heart, you know, and, and go with what, yeah. what you feel like is the most truthful thing. And I think another yeah. thing that's important is like people need to realize when they talk about their personal freedoms in this conspiracy theory and that conspiracy theory is like a lot of it is not all about you. You know, it's about keeping right. everybody safe. It's not just all about you. All I think that's another thing our social yeah. media has done to people is like everybody just thinks about themselves. You know, it's like, oh, my, yeah. my this, my that, my this. And it's like, it's not, yeah. it's not all about you. I remember when fucking they tried to introduce motorcycle helmets as mandatory and people were like, no fucking way, like over anything. Like there is this thing of like, don't tread on me that like runs since the fucking American Revolution through the thread of like the civil liberties and stuff that is somehow, and me, I didn't even get my citizenship till 2008, but it's like a very frustratingly oversimplified thing, but w which is somehow inextricable from like the American experience. And it's like, yeah, that part is just nuts. And now everybody wears motorcycle helmets and no one questions it. And it's right. just like, oh yeah, of course. Like you don't want to die, right? You wear the helmet. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. And then the other thing is the song that you wrote, is it called God's Love We Deliver? Uh-huh. Yeah. That's my corner. Oh like yeah. That building. Oh, you live right that there? Yeah, can you t will you tell everybody? Because it's sort of a beautiful story, like what that song is and what, how that just driving past that building inspired you to write the song and then the lyrics of it. Yeah, that's so funny, man. I haven't thought about that song <laughs> since 2012 or whatever. Yeah, that was on my first solo record, and I was living in Chelsea. Uh, I lived in Chelsea for a while, and I would go down there to catch the train or whatever. Just I just love walking. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's one of my favorite things to do is walk New York. You know, it's like yeah. just like... Phew, endless it's oh it's the best and uh so yeah i would just see those letters on that building every day and i was like what a beautiful sentiment you know and yeah. and to me one of my things I, I that i really love is this notion of god being a very non-polarizing word and being a very yes. very free word and a very open word yeah and god just being this whatever god is to you great you know, that's that's awesome, you know, but this notion of God, because to me, you know, whatever, God is love, God is music, you know, there's so many things, God is beyond, God is Alice Coltrane to me, you know, it's like God is like yeah. beyond so much that we could even put into words, but this thought of like, you know, delivering God's love, you know, that being one of our main purposes in this realm while we're here just was such a beautiful thing to me, such a beautiful thought that... I love that they put that on the on a building. You know, yeah. it's like I wish that was on every building. You know? Yeah, it's just like. Do you know what it originally was? The charity that it was, or anything? I'm trying to remember. I can't remember what it was. They started that when the HIV and AIDS crisis really hit New York. You suddenly had all these people that weren't really recognized as having anything by the healthcare system, and they were 
basically left alone like lepers. Right. So this charity came to deliver meals to all these sick people in wow. their homes. So wow. it, that's what it was and bringing it to all these people who are, you know, wasting away from AIDS and HIV in their homes. And I think David Geffen was probably the big proponent of it. Like, and he was the one who really, I think, put the huge amount of money and, and put the building up. And, you know, he obviously did a lot for the AIDS crisis, but it's kind of, even that is such a beautiful story. Like the idea of like delivering God's love, like literally going around wow. to like bring meals to people and stuff like that. Wow. That, that is so beautiful. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's one. Of, I wish we could all find that mentality because it's crazy how there's so much hatred and anger built into the notion of God too, you know, like there's so much religious hatred between different religions and stuff like that. And it's like, our goal should be to find a way to, to love and accept each other. You know, that's, that's yeah. like part of what makes life so wonderful. Like just from being an outsider, I mean, I always think of like the most soulful versions that I love of Southern rock. And it could be like the Allman Brothers, it could be Marshall Tucker. It could, there's so many things. And like, it's really easy to make this kind of thing like, well, that's because the church is still stronger in this part of America. So it's just genuinely more soulful or more spiritually. And that bleeds into the music. I mean, do you ever think about that? Or is that anything that holds any weight to you? Well, I mean, the church for me growing up was a very difficult thing. And it wasn't a good thing. You know, it wasn't an it wasn't. inspiring thing. Uh, it was very strict and very, it was terrible. I mean, I, I went to all... I went to Catholic grade school and all boys Catholic high school. Uh, it was nightmarish, you know. It was just like okay. the the cruelty and the the way that it's all warped, you know. It's 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 all warped, and I'm not saying this in any blanket judgment way of anybody's yeah. of anybody's religion, you know. But my that was my personal experience, and the only place that I could find God was in music, you know. So for for me. Uh, and in my friends, you know, th those were the only place I felt the spirit, you know, what, however you yeah. want to think about the spirit. And then really, I'll never forget hearing uh, what's going on for the first time and hearing Marvin sing God is love, you know, and I was like, wow, you know, like, yes, okay, this resonates with me. And then digging for old gospel records and stuff, there's this uh, record store in Lexington called Pops uh, Resale Consignment, where, where I went to college for a couple of years. I love just getting like dollar gospel records or whatever and feeling yeah. that and feeling like, okay, like I'm hearing this in the music and then, then continuing on to like Alice Coltrane. I mean, Alice, like listening to her, to me, I mean, that's been my most recent revelation on a God or whatever, because I just feel like there's when I listen to her sing, I mean, she did so many things, you know, she's an amazing harpist, amazing pianist, uh, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. I think she could do anything. Some of the synth stuff she did is mind-melting. Mind but when she sings, so she had an ashram uh, out in somewhere near Malibu out in L.A., mm -hmm. and uh, she would record these cassettes just for her uh, congregation or whatever at the mm -hmm. ashram. And uh, for years, uh, you've been able to get them as bootlegs or whatever. And it's so they sound so amazing because... Uh, they're all, you know, they're just literally cassettes somebody transferred to digital, and yeah. they're, they're all hissy and all weird, but it's like her voice is insane, and uh, there's these crazy synths zooming in and out and stuff, and she's playing the organ, and recently they took these tapes, and I don't know who decided or why they decided to do it, but they stripped all of everything off of it, all of the synths, all of the reverb, everything, and it's just her sitting at this organ playing, and there's nothing, it's like crystal clear, and the bass notes off her organ are like the roots of god like rattling your wow. your heart open and her voice the like the depth of humanity and her her voice is like a tunnel of souls it's like you at least for me it's like i can see all the way back to when humanity began and i see all the way into forward like through the tunnel of her voice and it's like every shade and you know spectrum of humanity all of the evil all of the horror all of the joy all of the, all of everything is in her voice and to me it's just like that's the presence of god mm -hmm. that are standing near my favorite tree or going out to see the redwoods or going out to see the sequoia trees or you know like just like to me that's god and any involvement i've had with organized religion or or whatever you know growing up i kind of came to realize that 
a lot of that stuff is just big business. You know, they they just want your yeah. they want your money. They don't give a shit about your yeah. soul. You know, and yeah. I think that's why where so much hatred comes from misplaced religious beliefs or whatever that are so warped yes. warped around this yeah. idea of just trying to get money from the parishioners, get money from the congregation. You know, it's like yeah, I just always question that when somebody wants your money and God's involved, something's not right there. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I love that. I mean, you actually said basically the same exact sentiment almost to the word when we started off this thing talking about rooms and recording studios, but there's like a, a Quincy Jones quote when he's talking about like working on some, I don't know what he's working on, off the wall, we are the world. And he's like, yeah, it was me and Lionel or something. And it's like, and of course, I mean, you always have to leave a little space to let God in the room. Like it's like that, whatever God is that, yes, you can call it your higher power, this spiritual thing, this thing that just being aware that there's, yeah, there's something beautiful that whatever it is outside of all the shit that we can control. Yeah, it's wild. I mean, I'm sure you know you know that feeling too. It's like you're you're in the studio for 12 hours or whatever, toiling away, and it's like nothing's happening, and then all of a sudden, the spirit shows up, you know, and it's like yeah. you're and you're feeling it, and the things happening, yeah. like something's happening, something's speaking beyond yeah. us, beyond anything we can understand, because you're yeah. still doing the same thing, you know, whatever. Yeah. Drummer's still playing the same drum kit, bass player's still playing the same bass, you know, in yeah. all, in all practical reality, nothing has changed, but that moment when the spirit enters and everything shifts, that's it, you know. That's that's the magic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, listen, that's a really wonderful way to end. And thank you for giving me so much time. And it was fucking great hearing you. Yeah, thanks so much. I appreciate it. Yeah, great. Yeah, great talking with you. All right, great. Okay, take care, man. Thanks, Mark. As soon as our interview ended, as promised, I listened to the Cliff Edwards recording of When You Wish Upon a Star. And James is right, it really is a thing of wonder. The song itself, the arrangement. But for me, mainly Cliff Edwards' gorgeous falsetto that both pulls you in like a Pied Piper and can break your heart in a few notes. It's also a testament to James' wonderful, very intelligent, but also childlike enthusiasm for all things musical and spiritual. The frontman of one of modern rock's most enduring bands, Legendary Badasses Live. The fact that the thing he was most excited to tell me about was this song, this Disney song, and how much it moved him. So thank you, Jim James. Take me out to the favor. Thanks again to Jim James for taking the time to talk with us. A special fader thank you to our Grammy and Oscar award-winning host, Mark Ronson. Please visit thefader.com slash podcasts to read the original cover story and check out a playlist of artists mentioned in this episode. If you like the show, please share it and review us on your favorite podcast app. Please join us next Monday to find out which of your favorite artists will be uncovered next. Executive producers Rob Stone and John Cohen for the Fader Podcast Network. Talent booking Robert English. Producers Alex Robert Ross and Maddie Russell Shapiro. Directed by Daniel Nevetta and produced by The Fader in association with BYT.NYC. Engineered and mixed by David Rogers Barry. Theme music by DJ Premier. For Fader Uncovered merchandise, please visit shop.thefader.com. Thanks, and see you next week. Next week.